1: and 365-day returns. Spoke Media
2: Not Sorry Productions Hi, Ariana. Hi, Vanessa.
3: Um, Why don't you tell us who you are? Sure. My name is Ariana Nettleman, I am the producer of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and this
2: show, Hot and Bothered. I knew I'd seen you somewhere. (laughs) Ariana Nettleman is one of my very close friends. We talk every day. We travel all over the country together. My dog loves her more than she loves me. We joke that sometimes we're sisters, sometimes wives, sometimes each other's bosses, sometimes each other's moms, sometimes each other's therapists. And yes, sometimes we fight, as you will hear. On this week's episode, Ariana Nettleman picked the trope enemies to lovers. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is Hot and Bothered.
3: So the story is kind of based on Anne Bonnie and Mary Read. I don't know if you know them. They're two pretty famous female pirates. No idea who they are. Great. I know just a very small amount about them, enough to be inspired. Um, They were both born as girls who were dressed up by their parents as boys.
2: And I would imagine in the 17th century there are about a billion reasons why you would want to do that. Definitely. Yeah.
3: Both of these young girls dressed as boys eventually grew up And escape to lives of piracy, one via the Navy, I think, one directly to piracy. And the really fun thing about this story is that they meet on the high seas. Really? Yes. In real life? In real life, and become part of the same crew. And one of them, like, basically tries to seduce the other one and says, like, hey, I'm secretly a girl. And the other one says, oh, I'm secretly a girl, too. And then they become, like, best friend lady pirates and live their beautiful lives. And at least one of them marries a man, but they do their pirate thing together in a really beautiful way. They both are imprisoned at one point, I think, and, like, say that they're pregnant and get out of prison. It's a remarkable story that I know very little about, but everyone should go look them up. Anne Bonnie
2: and Mary Reed. I'm so excited to become obsessed with this. Ariana's story is inspired by Mary and Anne, but she's changed it up. In her story, Mary and Anne are enemies, part of different crews going after the same treasure, and they fall in love amidst sword fights, hidden identities, and storms on the high seas. I think everyone is
3: delighted by the idea of female pirates, and I was twice as delighted by the idea of two female pirates who kind of have a love affair and who are masquerading in some sense.
2: Isn't Ariana's story idea brilliant? Ariana is brilliant. And this story is fantastic. It's even about the right kind of enemies. Yes, there are right and wrong kinds of enemies. I've given it a lot of thought. A right kind. Bad first impression enemies. Think Darcy and Elizabeth from Pride and Prejudice. Deep down, our two characters are actually compatible. They just need to learn more about one another. A wrong kind of enemy is toxic enemies. There are people in this world who you are toxic for, and they are toxic for you. And sometimes you are super attracted to each other. In spite of the toxicity, because of the toxicity, who knows? But you are enemies with that person, and for good reason. Or there are people who you are addicted to, or substances you're addicted to, or trains of thought. These are enemies that you should not fall in love with. Stay enemies. There comes a point where you say to them, you live your life, I'll live mine. I wish you the best, but I'll stay over here, and you stay way over there. Another right kind of enemy, and the kind I find most fun to read about, is structural enemies, like in Ariana's story. Two people are on different piracy crews or fighting for different countries. There's nothing inherent about the two of them that makes them bad for each other. Think Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. They just need the will and the opportunity to overcome the structure. Sometimes the structure is too much, Romeo and Juliet. And that is when the story is a tragedy and not a romance. But what Ariana is going to write about is about two women who are set up to be enemies on different crews and are set up to not be able to be together, queer in the 17th century, and find a way to be together anyway. Swoon. So romantic. This is going to be a great story. And it's so Ariana. A brilliant idea based on lots of research. But I was a little concerned, not about the story. I was concerned, okay, very concerned, about Ariana doing this project at all. So I wanted to know why she was doing it. I was a kid who loved writing.
3: I wrote stories all the time. I went to creative writing, like, summer camps and minored in theater in college so that I could take playwriting and screenwriting classes Um, I have not done any creative writing since college, and in the last two years, I've pretty much stopped doing any kind of writing. Why have you stopped writing? That's such a good question that I wish I knew the answer to. Fear, I guess. I, so I was in divinity school, as you know, um, and... I had all of these papers to write and in this like slow process I just gradually stopped being able to write them. I probably there's probably one paper that I didn't write and that just like flipped the switch and suddenly I didn't write. It was suddenly like I couldn't write anything after I hadn't written that one paper.
2: I watched Ariana as she struggled with to do or not to do grad school, for over a year. It was awful. Grad school was torture for her. So was the process of deciding whether or not to quit. She talked to her parents, her brother, professors. I made her ask a tarot card reader because why not? And then through pain and tears, through grief, she quit. It was so brave that I could still cry thinking about it. And she just went from being so unhappy to being happy. And from so unhealthy to healthy. And not even two months after she quit, she had signed herself up for this writing project.
3: Writing is so painful for me. Even when I was in college, every paper held so many tears inside of it. And I just never had the option in college not to do it. Like, I had to do it. And, like, suddenly when I when there was one paper that I hadn't written, there was this whole other option of not writing that was so much easier. I just found myself opting into it because I know the expression, like, pulling teeth is a cliche, but, like, that is what it feels like to write for me. It feels like I am involved in a process of self-harm And at some point, I just decided to stop hurting myself.
2: Remember toxic enemies? The people, the trains of thought, drugs, habits that are bad for you? I was worried that writing for Ariana was that, a toxic enemy. So why did you ask to do this project? Because I feel like I brought that concern to you, right? When you said you wanted to write the romance novel and be part of the podcast, I was like, I would love for you to be one of our writers, but I thought you hate writing. I just
3: think that writing doesn't have to be painful, that I loved writing as a kid. It was essential to my identity that I was a writer. More painful than writing for me is the idea of never writing again. Mm -hmm. And this seems like such a safe space to, to practice it a little bit. There's nothing at stake in writing a romance novel for yourself. If it's cliche, it's supposed to be cliche. All of the things that I would worry about what my graduate school writing could be if I turned it in and someone else read it doesn't apply here in theory. Maybe I will struggle and hold myself to those standards. Um, But if there is any way for me to overcome this wall that is writing, I think it is in writing a romance novel.
2: I am skeptical of this reasoning, but I'm biased. I don't believe in beneficial suffering at all. I come by that feeling, honestly. I am the grandchild of four Holocaust survivors and the child of refugees. So I was raised to believe that suffering is something that happens to a person, not that you willingly sign up for. The world will bring you suffering. Just wait. Don't self-inflict. So I Basically, want an all but guarantee that suffering will pay off. Like, the gym sucks, but having a strong heart and good blood pressure is good, so that suffering is fine. If I am not at least reasonably sure that the suffering will be worthwhile, then I want to do everything I can to stop it from happening. And I did not think that Ariana's suffering was going to be worth it. I felt like I was giving her the instrument of more torment. She dropped out of Divinity School, which was such a big, hard decision, to end this suffering. And now I was giving her away right back to it. But also, she's not a child. I may pretend to be her mom sometimes, but she's my fake mom just as often and has a real mom who is named Libby and is great. And I know that another thing to call someone who goes around trying to prevent the suffering of others is someone with the savior complex or is patronizing or overbearing. And I don't wanna be any of that. My sophomore year of college, I went through a terrible depression. I was in bed for two weeks. The guy I was dating, Aaron, came over after the two weeks and said, time to get out of bed. I remember thinking, screw you. You do not get it. I can't just get out of bed. And he physically ripped the sheets off of me and forced me out of bed. I was so mad. But here's the embarrassing thing. It worked. We went to dinner and a movie and it didn't cure my depression, but it wrapped up that session of depression quicker than it naturally would have ended. And that was so embarrassing to me. I had missed weeks of classes. And if dinner and a movie with a cute boy could have cured it this whole time, then what had I been doing? Ariana wants me to be Aaron, to rip off the covers and yell at her, right, faster, more, knees higher. I don't know, sports metaphor. But I don't really want to be Aaron. I think that he just got lucky, and he helped me, but he would have been just as much of a help if he had crawled into bed with me rather than ripping the sheets off of me. And I would always rather crawl into bed with someone than strip them bare.
3: Right. I mean, I think everything good that I've done in my life, I've done in partnership with you.
2: So. (laughs) That's not true. It's true. No, it's not true. You've done other things in partnership with other people. All the best things I've done in
3: my life have been in partnership with you. So I think if I am going to get myself to start writing, it should be in partnership with you. That's my best method for getting to success.
2: Okay, so no pressure. If I can't write with you, Vanessa, then this essential part of my identity is dead and I'll be sad forever. That's what she thinks at least. So I can't let her quit, right? I'm fucking in this thing, I guess. We parted for a month, and I had no idea how this was going to go. A month later, we found ourselves back in the studio. Hello, Ariana. Hi, Vanessa. How's writing going? It's not. Okay. I mean, you're busy. You have a job. I, I do have a job. Thanks, boss. That is me hedging. See, if you end up not writing, you have a list of excuses that have nothing to do with me being a bad friend or of you not being a writer. Life happens. I it's,
3: It scares me. It scares me like every other writing does. I thought that it would feel like something easier, but it doesn't. Why did you think it would feel like something easier? Because so many romance novels I read are not good, mm-hmm. so it felt like the barrier to entry was lower, whereas... For graduate school, so many academic articles I read held this bar quite high for me when I was imagining what I needed to be producing.
2: Were you imagining that you, like, had to write the next Foucault or, like, Derrida?
3: I just wanted to say something worth saying.
2: Do you think that the story you have in your head is a story worth telling?
3: My romance novel story? Yes. No. I also think a lot of romance novels are not stories that are, like, worth telling in the world because they're just the same story over and over again.
2: Noted. You think what I read is dumb. Well, I think your face is dumb. Told you we were good at fighting. So I think part of it is that I take tremendous joy from the process of writing my romance novel, but it sounds like you don't enjoy the process. My question is, what if you took the final product out of it? What if I was like, no one will ever read it? I'm counting on no one ever reading it. (laughs) So, this, this, well, you're, you're going to read it. What if I said I don't have to read it? Would you be more likely to write it? I don't know because I think it's
3: writing is so hard for me. I do need a reason to do it, you know? Like, I don't think I'm going to write just for myself. So
2: do you have, like, a belief in beneficial suffering? That's what I'm struggling with because
3: it feels really masochistic.
2: Yeah. Um. So end of episode. Stop. And that's where we finished. I convinced her. Suffering is bad. We went and had martinis and fries, and now she is comfortably stunted and not writing at all. Ever. She won't even text me back in words, only that flamenco lady emoji again and again.
3: I think if there's something I want to be masochistic about, it is this. I think being able to write is something that is worthwhile in my life and something that will enrich my life. And if I can, just like with anything, right, like learning to play piano sucks when you first start learning because you're bad at it and you just have to do the same thing over and over again, but eventually you're able to play and that is joyful. And I don't believe that writing right now for this podcast is going to be joyful, but I do think that it is the
2: practice. Ugh, okay, so we're still doing this. So how do we, f- how do, we do it? Do you and I write for an hour together a week?
3: I think we give me, like, really short amounts of time to do writing because it's always going to feel painful. It's always going to feel like
2: holding my hand in a flame. So we say try to write 100 words in five minutes. Exactly. Okay, we'll do that today. Do you want to do it right now? Yeah. Okay. We're going to pause right now, and we're going to take five minutes, and Ariana's going to write 100 words. And then we'll talk about the 100 words. On your mark, get set, go. Okay. Five minutes she will either be miserable and end in tears and then i can clearly say we are done here this is bad for you or it'll be hard but she'll end with a 100 words and at least we'll have a tactic that we can use going forward when you're ready to pop
3: the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring
2: How many words do you do? 57. Oy. It is not clear that she is failing, and it is not clear that she is okay. She's not still in bed, but she's not at the movies. At least she's writing. At least something is on the page. Hey, 57 words. Read them. They're they're not good words. Good.
3: If the devil were a woman in the Caribbean, she would be Captain Mary Reed, or at least that's what the cooks and seamstresses whispered to one another back in the colonies. Mary herself did everything possible to bolster this infamy. She started small, took out an ad in a local newspaper, Captain Mary
2: Reed, Wicked Murderer? Um, Okay, how do you feel? How did writing for those five minutes feel? Was it miserable? Not every second of it. How do you feel now? Like I want to delete it. What if I told you it was good?
3: I just don't think you learn about a character by talking about a character. I think I should start the scene in the bar.
2: Whatever. I know I don't sound like it, but I was very annoyed with Ariana in that moment like really deeply annoyed. She said she wanted to write and that sitting with me was the best way to make that happen, and we did that. And now she wants to delete it. There are actual torture systems designed like this where you are made to dig holes just to fill them back up. But also, I know that she is really working through something I just cannot stand to watch her work through it. I thought that this episode was going to be about Ariana writing or not writing. I didn't account for the 57% and then delete possibility. And what I cannot do is sit here and watch her painfully write 57 words and then delete them again and again. It is poisoning me watching her seemingly to me at least, hurt herself like this. And if something is toxic for me, shouldn't I, by my own rule, quit? I couldn't get to the bottom of why this was so hard for me, so I called my chaplaincy mentor, who also happened to be one of Ariana's professors, Stephanie Paulsell, to help me figure it out.
4: My name is Stephanie Paulsell. I'm a professor at Harvard Divinity School, where I was lucky enough to teach Vanessa Zeltown and Ariana Nettleman. So, Stephanie,
2: I'm going to tell you a little story, and I think none of it will surprise you. Okay. So, Ariana quit Divinity School, and she quit because she found writing to be so painful that she, like, couldn't do it anymore. And then, like less than a month later, she decided that she would sign up to be one of our writers for Hot and Bothered and try writing a romance novel. And I am having a really hard time sitting here and watching her suffer through this process of writing. I'm like, we already figured out that writing is so toxic for you that you can't finish grad school, and you just threw yourself back into it. And she's like, no, this is really important for my identity. I can do it. She's also being a snob and is, like, writing a romance novel so much easier than writing about Foucault. (laughs) And I'm just having a really hard time reconciling the fact that, like, I technically went to divinity school to be a chaplain and sit with people who are suffering. And I just want to tell her to quit. Mm. Like, can't I just tell her to quit? Like, I'm okay sitting with someone who's suffering because their mom died. That's not their fault. But she's doing this to herself. So I'm wondering your, like, judgment of this, or I'm also just, like, curious, because you watched Ariana really struggle, is she the idiot, or do I need to be
4: more patient? Well, the thing about Ariana is she's a beautiful writer, and like for a lot of us, it's painful to get those words on the page. I guess I would never tell Ariana to quit writing. I can't imagine telling Ariana to quit writing. There's obviously something in her that wants to write. She's a really good writer. But I do think sometimes people need permission to do other things, like writing is not all there is in the world. Grad school is not all there is in the world. I would never tell a student, you should quit grad school. But I would certainly try to scaffold people's decisions if, if it was clear they would really love to quit grad school, but they don't want to disappoint their mom or they don't want to disappoint their college professor or something like that. So what is my answer to your question? I guess maybe don't make yourself so available to Ariana's suffering. Um, you mean emotionally or like physically? I mean physically, like don't be in the room with her watching her. Try to get those words down.
2: So something that's like come up for me in this process is that I believe that suffering happens, right? Like suffering happens. Mm. And so like, don't inflict it upon mm-hmm. yourself. Mm. Mm. And I just didn't realize that as a chaplain, I'm making sort of a moral judgment, right? In talking to Ariana sometimes, I felt like a Republican. I felt like I was <laughs> like, can't you just be straight? Right? right. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's easier. Yeah. Yeah. Just do right. it. Right. And I was like, right. I don't want, like, yeah. I don't think that. Yeah. You know, and she's telling me part of her identity is writing and I, I like want to believe her yeah. in the same way that like, I hope even 50 years ago I would have, like, believed my child if they were gay and not just yeah, be yeah, like, yeah. but it'll be easier if you're not. Right. But I'm also just like, you, just stop, you <laughs> Just right. stop. It feels like, you know, we come back into the studio and she'll be like, yeah, it was really bad. And it feels like she's like, yeah, I held my hand over the candle for 10 minutes and it just really, really hurt. And now I have this burn. And I'm like, well, stop putting your hand on the candle. Like, what do I do in those moments where I feel like what she's doing me is showing me the wounds?
4: Well, I mean, this is the thing that makes sitting with people who are suffering difficult is that we also suffer with them, right? If you're a compassionate person, you suffer with them. That's what compassion means. And so sorting out what's your suffering from what's Ariana's suffering, I think, is maybe one important thing. And maybe not... You know, I mean, the impulse to sit in the room with someone who's having trouble writing, I really get that. Um, But it may be that that's not your work in this situation.
2: So Ariana made me complicit in her suffering because she said to me, literally, Stephanie, how terrible is she? She said to me, "Um, the best things I've done in my life I've done with you. So I think that you're my best shot at being able to write. Should I have just been, like, too bad? I And I did push back. I was like, no, you do great things without me all the time. And she was like, nope, only with
4: you. Well. She's a monster. She Well, A. But B, she, she, yeah, okay, so she's asking you to be with her. So if you're going to do that, you need to figure out how you can be with her without absorbing all of her unhappiness over writing. You're being challenged as a chaplain. You want to fix it, which is, of course, what we all want to do. When someone's suffering, we want to fix it. And that's another great temptation of chaplaincy that, you know, will make the suffering go away. But as you know already, chaplaincy is often a ministry of presence, a ministry of bearing witness, a ministry of holding Um, A space for suffering to happen without taking it into yourself and making it your own suffering, which is very hard. I think you're going to have to cultivate some detachment with Ariana's suffering, which is hard when you love her. That's why it's so hard to take care of the people we love the most. You know, when our parents are suffering, when our lovers are suffering, when our children are suffering, it's, you know, she's your beloved friend. You love her. And you're feeling more of what she's feeling. So I understand the impulse to want to say, just stop suffering. But there's there seems to be something Ariana wants to do here, you know? Yeah. I also
2: just really appreciate the distinction you've made between never telling someone to quit but giving them permission. Yes,
4: absolutely. Because writing is not—so maybe there's some space you want to inhabit between— You know, opening the space for her to write, giving her a project, this wonderful project you've given her, but also always knowing that what you value about Ariana is not that she's a really good writer. What you value about Ariana is she is who she is, and you love her. So I have to care about Ariana less. She's making it easy by being so annoying. (laughs) I don't think you have to care about Ariana less. I just think you have to not be so bothered by the fact that this is hard for her, and just let it be hard for her.
2: Let it be hard for her. Fair enough. Another thing that's interesting about enemies to lovers, specifically the structural kinds of enemies to lovers that Ariana's writing about, is that the stakes are always wrapped up in identity. I can't love you because you are a Montague and I am a Capulet. And at the climax of the story, one or both of the characters have to sacrifice that identity to be together. They have to say my love for you is actually more important than my name. What's in a name anyway? You make me happy and that is more important than this part of my identity that I was clinging to. What Stephanie was saying is that I have to sacrifice a little bit of my identity here. I have to sit a little disconnected and watch someone I love suffer, not knowing if it's gonna be worth it. I love thinking about myself as someone who acknowledges suffering. I went to divinity school specifically to train to be better at sitting in the face of suffering and bearing witness. And that is all that Ariana was asking me to do. She was just asking me to bear witness to her process, to sit with her as she tried to figure out whether or not she could find this part of herself again. And I went kicking and screaming. She wasn't asking me to condone her suffering. She was asking me to sit with her in it, to figure out how bad it was going to be. And I was so attached to my identity as no suffering on my watch, Zoltan, that I couldn't just let her figure that out in a safe, low stakes, and loving environment. Writing hasn't been her enemy, I've been her enemy. But Ariana has to sacrifice some of her identity too. Ariana has some entrenched conception of herself I am writer. But I know that Ariana is a complete person, even without being writer. So I texted her. Do me a favor. You think that writing is such a huge part of your identity? Call your mom and see what she says, and record the call like a creep. She responded, flamenco lady, which I knew meant, oh my god, you're so smart, such a good idea. BTW, have I told you yet that you're pretty today? Because you are. That call after the break.
5: Hi, Mama. Hi, sweetheart. How you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm doing great. How are you?
3: I'm doing great. Um, I just have a couple questions for you. Okay, shoot. Okay. What was your experience of me as a writer when I was a kid? And, like, what is your awareness of writing as an anxious thing for me? Where does that start?
5: Oh, that's probably more in high school, when you were stressed out about writing papers. I don't remember it in middle school. Do you remember? I mean, I remember, I just did the Who Am I interviews at Lincoln Middle School. So I pulled out your Who Am I binder. Do you remember that? Did you st- It didn't get the sense that you really stressed about that. Or maybe you remember more vividly. No, I don't remember. Um, what's a Who Am I binder? It's the culmination of the seventh grade at Lincoln Middle School here in Santa Monica. And they've been doing it for many, many years. And they try to help kids articulate their vision of what constitutes a worthwhile life. You do an essay on my glory. You have know, something from your your the your year that you were proud about, and hmm. you in your glory you took a different angle. Instead of writing something you were really proud about, you wrote about having sort of a nervous breakdown on the phone with your friends when you said you had no talent. <laughs> Does this sound familiar to you? No. What? Yeah. You were saying you didn't have any talent and they were trying to say, Oh no, Ariana, you're this or that. And you say those aren't talents, those are just qualities. And then you at the end of it, you say, Okay, I do have a talent. I'm a good friend. Because <laughs> <laughs> they said oh. they said you were one of your talents was writing. Oh no, I'm not a good writer. Joey's the good writer. You know, you poo-pooed everything. That's so sad. <laughs> but at the end, it was redeeming because you went upstairs feeling okay. I have fourteen qualities and one talent. I'm a good friend. But yeah, you're right. You're always very hard on yourself.
3: <laughs> yeah. That. Wow. I have no memory of that. Hmm. So you know, in this episode of the podcast, I try and write a romance novel, and I don't write anything. Ah <laughs> uh-huh. ha! <laughs> I see. And I guess, like, the the thing we kept coming back to was whether I should keep trying or whether or not I should just, right. like, give up and try and focus on on other things that I was good at.
5: That's a really hard one because I've always – you know, it's like it's not worth torturing yourself. At what point do you just say you need to move on? I mean, what do you think the answer is? Like, do
3: I stop trying? Like, you never – I don't – I never got the sense when I was younger that you were, like, pushing me to be – a writer, even though it was something that I was good at as right. a right. Well,
5: I think because you had so many talents, it wasn't like this is the one thing you were good at. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Mom. No, it's true. I mean, if there were a way of lowering the bar of expectations and just saying, okay, this is good enough. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm not one for... Saying one should inflict self-torture.
3: <laughs> um, you and Vanessa have that in common. Oh, okay. All right. So, what I'm hearing you saying is that too much suffering is bad. <laughs>
5: yes, I do firmly believe that.
3: <laughs> and I have more talents than just writing. Indeed. All right. Love you, right, Mom. Sweet. Love
2: you. Bye-bye. Bye. Apparently, one of the roles I play in Ariana's life is being exactly like her mother. I love Libby, so that's fine by me. After the forced phone call, Ariana and I talked one last time about this project. So this is our third interview, which is supposed to be our final interview. And you haven't written your romance novel? No. How do you feel about that? I don't
3: know if this is too meta, Um, And I also don't know if you know this, but I'm the producer of this podcast. What? So there's been this funny parallel for me of, like, trying to write a romance novel and create something out of nothing in that way and also try to create this podcast with you and create something out of nothing in that way. Um, And it has been equally scary to make this thing. Um, I have felt all of the same existential dread and, like, fear of humiliation so I think if people are actually listening to this episode, it means that, like, I have been on the journey that I should have been on and have succeeded and have made something, and that it just happens to be this podcast instead of the novel that I was supposed to write.
2: <laughs> <laughs> She's giving me her cutest smile right now. It doesn't work on me anymore. It's not true. It totally does. Um are you going to keep writing your romance all? Even like now you're off the hook. It's like the semester's over. You're getting a zero. That's a
3: good question. I whenever I don't turn in a paper, I always have the, the the beautiful image of my in my mind of one day writing it to the best of my ability and then sending it to that professor like 3 years later. Yeah. Um I have never yet done that. Yeah. But, but maybe this will be the one.
2: I mean, we're going to publish the things that people write on our website. Yeah, I'll write. I want people to be able to go and read what something that I've written. Okay, everybody go to the website and see what's up there. Yeah. Do you think, even if you don't write a single word, even if that website space is left blank, do you think that the thought experiments that you've gone through and the conversations that you have, like, do you still think that this process was worthwhile yes I think one of the
3: really the things that I was thinking about coming into this conversation was how much I considered myself a writer when I was like a teenager you know I went to all these writing camps Um, that was like a huge part of my identity and it's something that I really felt like I had lost in later adulthood Um, and I was like kind of mourning the loss of that but when I was a teenager, it's not like I wrote novels, right? I wrote, like, three pages of an idea that I had. Um, and that's what I've done here. I've written, like, a synopsis of something and a couple of pages of character study. And, like, that that gesture towards the thing that I did when I was a young girl feels really valuable to me, to, like, a, a reclaiming of self
2: Ariana did not write a romance novel. Turns out writing a whole romance novella is not actually a baby step. She is writing scenes of another romance novel, which none of us are ever allowed to read. And she's taken over the Harry Potter sacred text inbox, which is a lot of email writing. She's also become committed pen pals with a few people. She also helped write this script that I'm reading right now. These words. Yep, these So she's writing. I don't know why she's writing. I don't know if this experiment helped or hurt her process. I don't know if it was just getting some distance from grad school. I don't know if it was maybe me saying, you can quit. But I do think that Libby and I were right and Ariana was wrong. She is good at many, many more things than writing, but she is still writing. But for now, writing has become a non-toxic enemy, a worthy adversary to cross swords with on the high seas. Whether they fall in love over their cross swords is yet to be seen, but I don't think that they will do any mortal damage to each other for now. But of course, I worry, because as her wife-slash-therapist-slash-boss-slash-employee, and apparently mom, I'm in this for the long haul. And now it's time for our next assignment from Julia Quinn. Hi, Julia. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. Okay, so last week
1: everybody went out and they wrote their main character. What should they be up to this week? I don't think anybody will be surprised that they need to figure out the next character because we are working with two. And the, the next character can be equally main. Basically, it's kind of do a lot of what you did last time. Figure out the other character. Who are they? What's their backstory? What has happened to them to lead them to this moment where they are going to enter the first character's life? Or re-enter it, I should say, because it could be somebody who has already been in that person's life. Um, So I think you should do that. But then also, now that you have these two characters and you've figured out who they are, now you have to start figuring out the plot. And generally start with like your meat. It could be a meat cute, it could be a meat tragic, I don't know. But, you know, how are they going to intersect to begin the story? And if you're writing a full length novel, they might not need to meet right at the beginning. But if you only have 10,000 words to work with, and that's sort of what we're aiming at here, I mean, obviously, if you're doing more, that's great. But if you are writing a novella, you don't have a lot of extra space to come up with some sort of opening that doesn't involve your main character's meeting. So I think you need to figure out how are they going to meet and basically what's going to happen. Are you going to work with a tried and true trope? Are you going to do enemies to lovers, friends to lovers? There's all sorts of fun tropes you can work with or just regular plots. You know, is it going to be a workplace romance? I mean, even
2: deciding the two characters is going to determine a lot, right? If one of them is much older than the other one or much wealthier than the other one, right? It sounds like what you're saying is starting to think about the way who these people are will impact what happens to them. Exactly. So write your second character and then do sort of like a one to two page outline of how you think the story is going to arc.
1: Yes. And be aware that you will probably go off script at some point. (laughs) You know, somebody be like, my characters just took it in a different direction and that may happen. You may change your mind, but at least you get something down to get you moving. It is so important. And for people who are interested in following one of the tropes that
2: our authors is going to do on the podcast, you can go to hotandbotheredrompod.com, and we have a whole section on tropes and basic rules of what each trope does. And if you Google tropes, hundreds of tropes will come up. And I personally love the idea of working within tropes, although I know that not everybody feels that way,
1: but I think the limitations are really fun of that. And it becomes sort of a puzzle. Well, one of my favorite quotations I've ever heard about writing a romance came from Jennifer Kruse, who for many years was writing for Love Swept or Harlequin Romance, which is what we call category romance, the kind that people like to mock it because they're number, they sell them at the supermarket, but they're actually incredibly difficult to write or to write well. And what she said, though, was she says, it's like performing Swan Lake in a phone booth. So working with a trope can actually be more difficult because there are rules you have to follow, but these are all that's a thing. I'll probably say this every single episode, there's no one right way to write a book.
2: Well, I think that's a great thing for people to hear again and again. So, yeah. Okay, so everybody, that is your assignment this week. Could go out and write your second character and then do a sketch of how you think this plot is going to play out and we'll see whether or not. That ends up to be true. This has been Hot and Bothered, and we'll talk to you next week. If you want to share your writing assignments, go to our website, hotandbotheredrompod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at therompod and leave us a review on iTunes, preferably a five-star one. Our romance teacher is Julia Quinn. We are a co-production of Not Sorry Productions and Spoke Media. This episode of Hot and Bothered was executive produced and co-written by me, Vanessa Zoltan, and Ariana Nettleman. Word count, 7,200 words that she co-authored. Our production team is Julia Argy, Bridget Goggin, Chelsea Erson, Jeanielle Kastner, Caroline Hamilton, Jenna Hannum, Will Short, and Evan Arnett. Special thanks this week to Stephanie Paulsell and Ariana's mom, Libby Pacheris. Talk to you next week.